the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. It uh, has been a hard week for the Pearsons. Uh, my favorite dog, um, I do differentiate, we have my favorite dog and the other dog. Uh, my favorite dog uh, keeps trying to run away. Uh, last week he made it six miles in 40 minutes. Uh, running away from me. And you think I could have gotten the message uh, that he is apparently on his way to California, uh, but this week in his latest attempt to flee, it landed him in the vet where she had to sew up a huge gash across his chest and belly that he obtained leaping a fence on his latest jaunt. And so even as I preach, he's laid up in the veterinary clinic. Uh, Lauren and I this week also had to travel to Beaufort where I preached the funeral of a two-year-old little boy, the son of close friends of ours. And while in Beaufort we heard the terrible news of the church shooting at Emmanuel AME in Charleston, and Clem Pinckney, the pastor of that church, is from Beaufort. Didn't know him well, but I'd met him half a dozen times, and he leaves behind two daughters and a wife, two little girls, and he was only one amongst the other eight who had died. Well, in the midst of this broken and fallen world, it's no wonder that so many of us are afraid. Fear is a real thing whether it is rooted in reality or not. In fact, a rational fear may be even stronger than rational fear. We read in Mark's Gospel this morning that the disciples were gripped with fear in the boat, and for good reason. There was a storm raging, the wind was blowing, the waves were coming over into the boat, and they were bailing, and they were ready to go completely under. So they were afraid. And that was on top of the fact that they knew where they were going in that boat. They were crossing over the Sea of Galilee to land on the eastern bank to an area known as the Decapolis. And it was full of non-Jews, non-believers. And if you read further in Mark's gospel, you'll find that as soon as the boat touches the shore, a demon-possessed man confronts Jesus, fulfilling every stereotype the disciples would have had of these people. All of their fears in their minds were confirmed. So too many of us are gripped with fear. Sometimes our fear is rooted in reality, like the disciples here in the boat. There's definitely a storm, and there's definitely a chance it could sink. And then we all have irrational fears. I asked one of my daughters, what are you afraid of? And it didn't take her very long to say, the dark and monsters. Now, we think, well, we've grown out of that, but in fact, we trade those in for more sophisticated boogeymen. When we're sick, we look up our symptoms on the internet, and we find that we have either the common cold or the bubonic plague. We are all practicing medicine without a license. We're Googleologists, 
admit to being afraid recently of my travel schedule. I've been traveling a lot and a fear of the plane crashing, the car crashing, computing the statistics in my head as to the possibility of a crash if I took two flights within 24 hours. But what's scary in life is that sometimes the irrational now becomes a real possibility. The recent shooting at Emanuel AME Church in Charleston ought to make us stop and think about a number of things. But above all, the fact that this happened in a church, a group had gathered for Bible study and worship of the Prince of Peace. I also think it's worth noting that this individual, driven by hate, knew that if he was looking for black folks, he could find them in a church. This young man spent an hour with them in prayer and Bible study, and then shot and killed nine of them. Life can be really frightening. Well, ultimately, what we find in life is that our fear is rooted in a sense of loss of control. When we find ourselves in a situation that we cannot improve upon or affect to go the way we want it to go. Now, this is not to say that all fear is destructive. It's good to be afraid of a hot stove. It's good to be afraid of driving too fast. Uh, and in spite of things that we would think are common sense, there are people who threw caution to the wind. Just last month, uh, two, uh, what do they call themselves, two extreme athletes died after base jumping in wingsuits. They climbed to the top of Taft Point in Yosemite National Park, 7,500 feet up, and then they jumped off, and it didn't work. They should have listened to their fear. In Fitzsimmons Allison's book, Fear, Love, and Worship, Bishop Allison talks about William Faulkner's 1950 Nobel Prize speech. Bishop Allison writes, there he diagnoses with uncommon insight, that is Faulkner, the fear that inhibits a writer's creativity and causes him to bury his talents. Faulkner said, he must teach himself that the basest of all things is to be afraid, and having taught himself that, forget it forever, leaving no room in his workshop for anything but the age-old verities and truth of the heart. Bishop Allison continues, in other words, Faulkner tells us that our problem is fear, and the solution is to forget it forever. This sounds like nothing so much as telling a desperate alcoholic that he drinks too much. And while true, it is quite unlikely to be helpful. Do you tell someone who is chronically afraid to be, of being inadequate to forget it forever? If we are afraid, how can we forget it forever? The exhortation not to be afraid, forget it forever, may actually cause us to be even more afraid. Mr. Faulkner, to the contrary, the truth of the matter is that to change our wills and overcome our fears, 
We need to be where our wills and fears can be touched by outside forces. That's why we gather for worship on Sunday mornings. That's why the Bible talks about having a personal relationship with God. There's a point of connectivity and worship of all places. This is the very space in which to bring our fears. But for most of us, we come into worship and we think, now it's time to focus on Jesus. And you put aside all of that other stuff that really is plaguing your mind. You have to turn your mind off in order to engage worship, so you think. But our communion service says it so well. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That God actually wants to engage you in your fears. Whether they're rational or not, it makes no difference because they have a profound effect on you. God knows, as Bishop Allison says, that there is a complex mixedness about our wills and our spirits. We are not totally afraid, though there is in each of us a measure of unrest and uneasiness about ourselves. In respect to almost everything important in our lives, there is an ambivalence, a mixed feeling, one both positive and negative. We want both to stop smoking and not stop smoking. We want to be different, and yet we do not want to change. We want to be less afraid, but not enough to be less afraid. But as we enter into worship and God engages us in the innermost parts of our hearts, when his love is able to penetrate through those storms and even the hardness of our hearts and our mixedness, fear is cast out. John tells us in his first epistle that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. I'll be honest, one of the reasons why I worry, why I fear, is that there is a part of my heart that thinks maybe Jesus is not totally in control. Maybe, maybe I have to do a little bit of something to, to hold it together, and I have to tell myself, he is. The same God who sat in that boat 2,000 years ago and calmed the seas with but a word is the same God, if he can do that, is the same God who can say to our tumultuous and storm-ridden hearts, peace, be still. He's the one who laid the foundations of the earth. He's the one who cast the line. He's the one who says to the waves, here but no farther. This is not fatalism. This is a supreme confidence, though sometimes faltering, in God's faithfulness and his ability to save you and me. Many things in our life are beyond our control. Dogs run away. Children run away. People die. Awful things happen, even in church. 
because we live in a broken and fallen world, bad things will happen. This does not lessen their impact on us. They are still devastating. We are left with two options. We can either retreat from life with a false sense of safety at the expense of living life. Or we can go boldly into the world, storms and all, not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord Jesus. We cannot calm the storms, but he can. As I prepared to write the funeral sermon this week for this two-year-old boy, I kept remembering this tombstone in England. It's from the, 19, it's from the 1800s. And it's the grave of a three-month-old infant boy. And on his tombstone, his parents had engraved, Because Adam sinned, he died. Because Jesus died, he lives. Even in the midst of the pain and brokenness of losing their son, they saw the hope in Jesus. They saw that he had the ability to cast fear and pain out of their lives. And it was because God saw this broken and fallen world. He saw our own brokenness and saw us incapable of saving ourselves, bailing out the boat as hard as we may try. And so he took on flesh and came into this world on a rescue mission. He sees us while we are still far off with mercy and compassion, and he gets into the boat. He gets into the boat with us, even at the risk of his own life, for he would die for us and be raised for us. Who is this Jesus? Why is it that in a relationship with him, our fear is cast out? Or at the very least, fear can take its rightful place, not one of control, but in light of who Jesus is. Later on in our service, we'll sing Charles Wesley's hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And Charles Wesley experienced a conversion when he was suffering with a bout of pleurisy in May of 1738. And while he was bedridden, he was visited by Christians who prayed for him and he read his Bible. And he points to that moment where in his bed, he was finally resigned to the fact that I'm doubting, I'm struggling with my faith. I feel as if I might actually die. But he was overwhelmed with a sense of peace that God was in control and so one year from that experience, Wesley wrote, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing to commemorate his conversion. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrow cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears, tis life and health and peace. There's a wonderful little devotional called Streams in the Desert. And on this passage, the author writes, Jesus Christ is not my security against the storms of life, but he is my perfect security in the storms. He has never promised me an easy passage, only a safe landing. Do you know that one of the most popular, almost as popular as the cross, in fact, in some early Christian sites, there are more of this symbol 
than there are crosses. For the early church, one of the most popular symbols was that of an anchor. That Jesus Christ was for them the anchor. And if you know anything about the early church, it was no wonder for if you were part of a church and your friends had been dragged off to be thrown to lions or burned at one of Nero's garden parties. Would you not look for something that would hold Something that would stand fast in the midst of the storms that not only may come, but will come. And so even to us today, Jesus Christ is our anchor. In this broken and fallen world that he looks upon and says, this is not the way things are supposed to be. And so he comes into our world in order to save us and to redeem us and to renew us. And so this morning I pray that this Jesus, this anchor that holds, would speak to you in the midst of your storm and say to you, peace be still. Do not be afraid, but believe. Amen.